Jarring Cacophony tells you that you're listening to the Power of Three podcast, where three lifelong Doctor Who fans, I'll introduce them to you shortly, discuss, enthuse and occasionally criticise a trio of products related to our favourite show. That might be television adventures, both classic and uh, recent. It could be spit-off novels, books about the show, biographies, magazines, DVD releases, basically anything that gives us the excuse to talk about Doctor Who. Follow us on Twitter at Power of Three Pod. That's three as a number, Power of Three Pod. We also have a Facebook page where you can leave comments, suggestions, and of course, listen to episodes of this podcast. Now, I'm going to introduce you to my co conspirators. First, we have the former leader of the Liberal Party, Mr. David Steele. Good afternoon or good morning. Hello. And we also have Mr. Kenneth Smith. An interesting thing about Kenny Smith, I will tell you right now, is that he, uh, in a very kind of Colin Baker and Tom Baker sort of way, replaced me at East Kilbride News as a junior reporter. That's true. There was quite a few years in between, Tom. Don't forget that. <laughs> well, exactly. There was, which is why I didn't say that you were Peter Davison to my daughter. You were Colin Baker, arguably Sylvester McCoy. That's brilliant. <laughs> I do have a similar fashion sense to Colin Baker's doctor. So, yes, that's fair comment. I'll give you that one. <laughs> we are going to talk about three things, as we see in the publicity. And... In this episode, we have decided to focus on sequels, of which there are many um, in the universe of Who. I won't call it the Who-niverse, because I know that offends some people. Um, and we've decided to look at three particular sequels. One is an audio adventure, one is a TV adventure, and one is a novel. It was at the Singapore Hilton, on the cusp of the years 1930 and 1931, that I first met Mr. Sebastian Grail. My masters will bestow upon me the earldom of Earth. It will be my efforts that will allow their entrance to this world. The first instalment of your immortality awaits you. Right you are. Tonight is when they, whoever they are, begin to make Grail immortal. We have to stop it. I am going to ask Dave to introduce it by way of the wiki entry that's from the, is it, what do you call it? Is it the TARDIS wiki or something? Fandom? TARDISFandom.com, something Tardis like that. TARDISFandom.com. Anyway, Dave, read us yep. what it says okay. about Seasons of Fear. So, yeah, Seasons of Fear was the 30th story in Big Finish's monthly range. It was written by Paul Cornell and Caroline Simcox and featured Paul McGann as Eighth Doctor and India Fisher as Charlotte, Charlotte Pollard. We said Charlie Pollard. Um, it was the third in a run of six audio stories featuring the Eighth Doctor. So the third story of his second se- Big Finish season, as you will. Absolutely. Now, this is one that uh, I, um, obviously, I have a, a bit of an interest in Big Finish, as I edit Vortex and write to the Big Finish Companion. And Seasons of Fear, as we know, it's well for those of us who have heard it, it does feature the return of an old monster so it's not a direct sequel but it features an unexpected appearance from one of our old favorites which uh, i know that dave and i had listened to it but tom you were a newcomer to this story weren't you how did you enjoy it and did you see the twist coming at the end of episode three 
I did not see the twist coming to episode three. Now, I suppose we should warn listeners about spoilers. Um, yeah, can we recommend... Spoilers are plenty. Spoilers yeah. are plenty. If you, have, <laughs> if you haven't heard it, tough. this might be the time to jump out and come back at uh, the next section until we have heard it. Yes, I don't know when the next section is. You'll just have to pot, take, take your potluck. Yep. Um, come back in about 20 minutes. Kenny was uh, waxing lyrical about this. Uh, I, I was very excited. And he even texted me halfway through listening to it. Have you got to the end of episode three yet? And I was very excited to get to the episode three. I'm not going to lie to you, Kenny. When we got to the end of episode three, I was a bit disappointed. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, expect, I was expecting oh, yeah. something really iconic and brilliant and unexpected. And it was certainly unexpected, but but the Nymon. Exactly. I, mean, I thought that was the whole point. You're taking something nasty and actually crap. doing something good with them. They were pretty crap in the original television adventure. I mean, that's the one with Janet Ellis, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't. It's that. an interesting one because I've been. I was trying to remember. I was trying to remember if I knew from when I listened to it and it was first released. If I knew about the Nymon beforehand, was was oh, that right. was that in the people? Was that was it a surprise at the time, Kenny? I can't it, remember. It was kept quite because um, at the time, for those who don't know. Before I did official Big Finish things, I did unofficial Big Finish things in the form of a fanzine. I did a zine called The McGanzine, which covered the making of the first Paul McGann series from Storm Warning through to Minuet in Hell. And also as part of this, I did a preview of the second season, which had been announced as being recorded. And as one of the previews, Caroline Simcox mentioned that the Nymon were in it. And I was all ready to go and photocopy everything ready. And then I got a very urgent email from Paul Cornell saying, can you take this mention out? This is meant to be a surprise. So right. I knew it was coming up, but nobody else did. And that's the one of the wonders of Big Finish is you can pull off these surprises. Because obviously, if you're out shooting on location, people can see if you've got the Jadun or if you've got some Tarans uh -huh. or whatever. Uh -huh. But with Big Finish, it's obviously kept quiet in studio, so no one knows. I remember talking about it at the time with my pal Tony Nixon and sort of, you know, and doing our best, you know, Paul McGann impressions. It's only the bloody nine on Charlie, you know, all that. Um, and it's, you know, it's, um, it's one of these ones. It's like, as Tom says, they're not one of the, they're not one of the major sort of monsters. It's one of these, it's one of these things quite often that happens with, um, with sequels and spin-off media that they'll, they'll use, They'll use an element or a monster or whatever that, that the hardcore fans will will know or recognise significance of, but more a broader audience maybe wouldn't get the the reference of. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because um, all the references, I mean, all the clues are there. You know, the fact there's the, the line yes. weakling scum appears. Yeah, and all the stuff about the bulls, the bulls and stuff. Yeah, and, black and the bull on the cover, like of course. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Did, I didn't want to give the impression that I didn't actually like the seasons of fear. I thought it was actually brilliant. Um, and I loved the the uh, I love it when writers actually do take on the issue of time travel in a way that you know for for a long time in the series and television they didn't you know it, it was something that you know until about day of the Daleks really they didn't kind of play around the timey wimey stuff yeah. and I love it when they do it in the new adventures really? and yeah. and I thought it was terrific I, I thought I love the idea of the Doctor and Charlie hopping around trying to you know keeping a track of the same guy over hundreds yeah. of years yeah. I, I just thought all of that was really good I only mentioned that slight disappointed because I always thought the Nymon in the original Tom Baker show was a bit crap 
um, and I wasn't particularly excited to hear it was the Nymon, and 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 I blame Kenny uh, for, for begging it up entirely yeah. for begging it up. Because yeah, yeah. all the talk, the talk of black holes, you could be expecting Omega or something, couldn't you? Yes, exactly. It could have been something yeah. huge. Yeah, I, I quite and like of course, the fact that it is a surprise. Yeah, of course. You know, they did a big finish. Also, did a uh, a sequel to the um the Arc of Infinity with Omega, which of course the Arc of Infinity itself was a sequel um, to the Three Doctors. Now, the thing the thing I enjoyed most about Seasons of Fear was just um as, as a long long term. And still current sort of big finish listener. It was so it was so nice just hearing how young Paul McGann and India Fisher sounded. They sounded like babies. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, it you was don't really think they're really I'm I'm not listening. I'm trying to listen to these things in order, but I obviously skipped forward to Seasons of Fear, and then the next one I listened to was Winter for the Adept. Right. Um, and of course, that's got Charlie. That's got uh, not Charlie, but it's got India Fisher playing a different role in that one. Yeah. But her voice is very distinctive. I I really like her actually. Yeah. It's a beautiful voice. I should ask yeah. her to um, say hello to us here on the Power of Three podcast. Ah, if only. She's lovely. <laughs> behave, behave yourself. So, <laughs> Kenny, what what attracts you apart from the yeah, wonderful what, iconic villain of the night? <laughs> what what attracted you about this? I think it's. I think I mean, it's, as you mentioned, the time travel is very cleverly used, and I think in Sebastian Grail or Grail Eye, we have a quite a quite a tragic character with um, power corrupting absolutely, and we see him particularly when he meets his earlier self. It's, it's it's rather you know interesting where you can see the change between he can see the change between himself yes. and how he's horrified at what he's become yes. and been warped by the pursuit of power, and money and it's quite an interesting corruption and I think it's very well done and very well handled um, I think you've got a fantastic cast he's really well played um, and it's it's not a surprise that Stephen Perring was later asked to come back and play the Croca further on down the McGann line um, What story was that for? Uh, he appears onwards from the Creed of the Croman which right. is number 52 in the month of Revenge um, but I, I think it's a it's a great story. Jumping around time, the fact we get all these different characters popping up, um, and of course there's the the scene with the Dalek getting attacked that materialises out of nowhere. Yes. Which of course, it makes no sense in this context, but of course <laughs> so, that's the wonders of a, a linked season. It does make sense. Yeah. It so was the end. Was it time of the Daleks that tied into? Was that right? Is that, that was right. Was that one after? It's, it's two stories later. Two right. stories further down the line. Right. Because as I say, it's a good, a good long time since I've listened to these ones. I'm glad you right. explained that because that, that completely befuddled me. I didn't understand what the heck was happening there. Yeah, yeah. I will now listen make to sense. the next couple so, of stories. So when, when was that? 2002 to the, or 2003? When was when was it? Those, those came out, Ken? Right, that was 2002, January to June. These came out. Right. I don't right. even need to look this stuff up. I know it all. I know. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think I listened to them. Immediately they came out. I think I, I bought them all together a few months later. I think I love, at, that, at that time, um, I remember the, them all slowly, gradually turning up on, on, on HMV's sort of like you know stock system, so I could buy, I could order them in for myself there and get my staff discount on them. I remember doing that. Oh, even better. Because <laughs> I think it, it's you've got to remember, put in context. Of course, Doctor Who wasn't in TV at the time, and this was the new run. We've got the, oh, you know, the yeah. original Doctor, absolutely. And yeah. it's put in context. This is like the ongoing. Yeah, the ongoing new series. I mean, I, rem- so I remember when the when the first McGann releases came out, it was it was it was so exciting. I mean, it was it was you know 
it was it was I mean it was a new essentially as far as we were all concerned those who were listening it was it was a new series I remember like, listening to Storm Warning and just like you know couldn't believe what I was hearing it was yep. you know that he was in a back. good way yeah absolutely yeah. Um, I, I guess um, as someone who's fairly relatively new to the big finish um, audio adventures Kenny I'm guessing that um, the revival of the show in 2005. Uh, you know, some people might think, oh, well, people would just leave Big Finish and then go back to television, but I'm guessing it actually grew the audience for the audio adventures. Well, the interesting thing is that it virtually killed Big Finish. Ah. Straight away, it's been on, they've gone on record as saying this, so it's not as if I'm talking out of turn. Yeah. Um, people suddenly thought, oh, TV's back, I don't need Big Finish anymore. Uh-huh. And when just when they were expecting, as, as you just said, they were expecting a shot in the arm, it was... It was they had the completely opposite effect. So thankfully, um, the listeners did come back once this once obviously the the Eccleston series had finished, and people were oh, hang on a minute, Doctor Who's not on screen anymore. And then it started to build up bit by bit. And I think having David Tennant having done some big finish, obviously that's really good marketing material for Big Finish. Day. Here's the guy who yes. plays the Doctor, although he's yes. not playing the Doctor. But here he is fighting the Daleks in Dalek Empire yeah. 3 or something like that. Yeah. 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 It's very much, uh, it did have the opposite effect, but obviously things have changed and grown. And now, of course, Big Finish can feature the new series up to the end of the Capaldi era, bringing in whoever they like, thankfully. Um, and it's, it's wonderful. It just keeps growing and growing. But that's Excellent. another story for another day. Absolutely. How, how do we think it stands as a as a sequel rather than a story, you know, or a, as a story which just uses an element from the past, I think it it, it definitely falls into the latter. I think because it's not yeah, really a, it's I, not really I, a real I, sequel I to the Horns of Naimon. I wouldn't describe this as a sequel at all. Uh, yeah, uh, it's a monster sequel. It's it's thematically linked with the Naimon, yeah. but yes, in the same way that every Doctor Who adventure is thematically linked with every previous Doctor Who adventure, it's got some yeah. of the same characters in it. Yeah, but. Yeah. You, you know, it's quite difficult to describe this as a sequel to Horns of yeah. Diamond, isn't it? It's it's interesting because there are I, I've I have quite mixed feelings about sequels. I think sometimes I think they work better than others. You know, I think you know, for example, during the when when Peter Davison was on television and they did Kinder, and then a year later they brought the Mara back. That worked really well because Tegan, same Doctor, you know, the same cast. Chance are the audience would remember. But I think you know when they start, if in this case. If this had been a story on television, I think the, the majority of the audience would be sort of going, "What? You know, mm-hmm. a fan's going to know who the Nymon are." You know, another a similar one would have been a similar thing. I think when they work quite well, and we'll obviously we'll talk about the Web of Fear in a little while. But um, when during the, the Christopher Eccleston months, when um, they brought Margaret Slidine back, a few stories down the line from Aliens of London, that was quite good. You know, because it, it kept it current. I think I think the best sequels are the ones which maybe use the same cast or the same regular cast, I should say, and, and, you know, happen quite quickly afterwards. I think sometimes if you, if you leave it too long, they're not quite as if, as if you can't guarantee the audience are going to know what's going on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I suppose well, you could New Earth and the End of the World as well. Yes. Yeah, that. absolutely. Jeremy, yeah. Um, let me ask you then, as somebody who knows Big Finish very well, I mean, to what extent are those stories, as Kez Dave was saying there, um, directed and targeted at the fans 
and to what extent are they targeted at a, a more general audience? I mean, there's always a risk, isn't there, as we found out in the dying days of the original classic series, that if you focus, if you provide yeah. too much for the fans, it, it tends to exclude yeah. more general viewers. Uh, is that what's happening with Big Finish? I, think, I mean, how do they target their, their product? I think at the moment that we're seeing a lot more, for, for example, Doctor Who vinyls appearing in HMV, we've seen them in Sainsbury's and Asda. And the fact that's obviously putting Doctor Who big finished products into high street stores that previously mm-hmm. wouldn't have been there. Mm-hmm. I think there's very much, uh, with the classic series, it's very much targeted at the fans. But I think with the likes of the David Tennant audios, mm-hmm. there's definitely a bit more sort of wider appeal there to people who maybe mm-hmm. wouldn't normally buy a big finish. Yeah. But that yeah. way they've got the chance to dip in and say, oh, Hang on a minute. Here's David Tennant and Billy Piper. Yeah, yeah. Here's David Tennant and Catherine Tate. Yeah. So it's putting I mean, something recognisable on into the yeah. sh- into the stores and people because yeah. obviously there's the brandings there. I mean, even with the big finish action figures which are out at the moment, um, that's again that's taking big finish into the mainstream into B and M with yeah. the clear marketing and those. I mean, as yeah. I hang on a seconds, I reach to my side. <laughs> um, it's very clear. It's you know, it's got the Big Finish logo there, and it's got you know Big Finish website, bigfinish.com, so you can find out you know, more about them there. So I think there's definitely a bigger push on making Big Finish known out with just the normal fan circles. Yeah, but I, th- I think I think what Tom's really meaning though is the is the stories. Do you know what I mean? Because I, th- I I can I can I find sometimes that um you know being being a fan I find that I I. I don't really tend to enjoy stories that rely on the foundation of being, you know, a sequel to, a, you know, a, a previously broadcast story sort of thing. Like I remember, there was, I'm not going to name names, but there was there was a, a, a quite a significant box set recently which was completely founded on stories that had been set up during the William Hartnell era. And I kind of, for me, it kind of got in the way of enjoying the story. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But and there's a there's a difference though between I think. If you've got a good story at the root of it, which which is why obviously you know on television and and, and the spin-off media they keep they, they reuse stuff like the Daleks and the Cybermen, you know because if you've got a good idea for a good story with them you, you're going to keep using them. But I think sometimes, and you know this is what I'll say as well from when we talk about about the Sands of Time, um, I think sometimes I, I prefer it when when a story is first and foremost a good story rather than something that is a sequel to something that's already been done. But I think as fans, uh, I think as fans, we're probably a bit more receptive to the idea of sequels because we, we're the, we're the ones that are going to more likely to kind of spot the references and or, or the tie-ins or whatever. I think that's a fair comment. I think very much um, a lot of things are aimed at the fans. Yeah, the fans know what. I mean, big finish. I've got to remember, they are all fans too. Absolutely. There is a the thought of um, yes, what what would have happened? What happened next after story X and. Uh, how would that have panned out? So yeah, I think it's, I think it's fair, fair to pick up on, on those strands and um, yeah. do something new with them, which yeah. very much the I'm on are actually made into something a bit scary, and not so much of a joke. Have the, have of the fear. um have they used them again after seasons of fear? No, they've right. not appeared since. Right. Interesting. Next up, uh, our next sequel is a novel. So. Uh, Kenny, what does Tardis Wiki tell us about The Sands of Time? It was the 22nd novel in the Virgin Missing Adventures series and it was written by Justin Richards featuring the Fifth Doctor, Nyssa and Tegan. 
Now, this continues many of the themes in the TV story Pyramids of Mars and in good old timey-wimey style functions as both a prequel and a sequel to that classic from season 13. Now, Tom, I know that you've you've uh, enthused about this before um, when we've chatted. Um, how did you find coming to it? Um, particularly, obviously, it's an intriguing cover that draws you in straight away with the servicer robot mummies. Yes, yeah, so the, the version I've got is the, the later reissue, and it's just the face of the servo robot. It's not that it's not that one that, that that's in one of the versions where you see the several robot carrying the body of a woman. Yeah. I've got one just slightly uh, more stark, um, and I just really enjoyed this. I mean, I I I came to some of the the sequel novels, you know, New Adventures, slightly jaded and slightly uh, not expecting very much, and this is one of the first ones that I actually read, um, and I just thought it was. Terrific. It's, Justin Richards really captures the voice of Peter Davison's daughter. Um, he he clearly has, you know, familiarised himself with the Fifth Doctor's adventures. And as soon as you get a piece of dialogue in it, you you just hear Peter Davison talking, and that Definitely. is something that I think not all novelists perhaps capture. The other thing it's got going in its favour is uh, its predecessor. I mean, the Pyramids of Mars. Um, for me, you know, was just probably peak who. Right. Um, it, it had everything going for it. I'm a huge fan of old um, Hammer horror movies, particularly yeah. The Mummy with yeah. Christopher Lee yeah. and Peter Cushing. And this, you know, this uses, uh, you know, shamelessly it uses all of those old horror tropes in a brilliant way. Uh, it uses humour. It uses a terrific story. It, it, it is genuinely scary you know the scene I mean, we're not reviewing pyramids of mars at the moment of course but the, the scene where the the gamekeeper not the gamekeeper the poacher is you know trying to escape the server robots and i remember watching that as a kid and and what really freaked me out was the sudden realization that the reason what that made it scary was that he was running hell for leather and the robots were sauntering very slowly because they knew they didn't have to go very quickly to catch him um, and I thought that was a horrific idea. I thought that was just genius. Anyway, Sands of Time obviously revisits a lot of the characters and the situations that we had with Pyramids of Mars. Um, spoiler alert. Is this a spoiler? I don't know. It's, Go for it. it looks at the Osirens, but um, not necessarily the same Osirens that were in the original television series, but gives you the impression uh, of the, the horrific realization that there are people in the universe even worse than Sutek. Um and once again it uses the timey wimey stuff. You know, there's a, it has, has I think I read somewhere it's got more trips in the TARDIS within one novel than any other novel. Right. Fourteen, and, yeah. Fourteen TARDIS trips. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> and um and to good effect and you don't lose track of what's happening. It's it's not I wouldn't say it's complicated, but it's a very sophisticated plot and a very satisfying ending. I just thought it was terrific. Yeah. I think it's particularly clever in the way that we have the Doctor turning up and people know who he and Tegan are yeah. after yeah. Nyssa is taken. And it's it's so nicely done. Again, it's, it's foreshadowing an awful lot of what Stephen Moffat would come to do on TV where the story's already started, although the Doctor and his companion don't actually know it. 
Yeah. And it's, I think it's very cleverly done. There's some great writing in there, particularly right at the start when Nyssa is kidnapped. And there's that trip through Victorian London, which is most enjoyable um, as they make their way through the streets. And you can picture it. It's very, very, very visual for a, for a novel that way. And I think, as you said, Justin Richards just gets Davison's dialogue completely on the money. One of my favourite Doctor Who writers, one of the ones that you know that if you see his name in a story, you're going to get a good solid yarn. It's going to entertain and it will hit all the buttons and very much feel of the period. What else has he written, Kenny? Oh, what hasn't he written? He's written for virtually every single Doctor. He's done tons of Big Finish, quite a lot of BBC novels as well. Um, I mean, he did he did the first Colin Baker Big Finish, Whispers of Terror, which is a story that could oh, only yeah. work in audio. Yeah. Uh-huh. So if you haven't heard it, very much worth a listen. Um, did, of course, Justin was um, a guiding hand in the Eighth Doctor novels for the BBC later on. Right. Um, he was. I was the main range sort of editor for quite a long time, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah. His, his first one was. His first novel was. Uh, Theatre the of, of War. War. Yeah, that was, was a. That, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed Theatre of War. I remember. I enjoyed that one a lot. I, I have to I be think honest. My my main memory of um of Sands of Time when I from when I read it originally was that I, I didn't my memory the sticks is I didn't enjoy it as much as some of these other ones. Um, Theatre of War was it System Shock that was one of his wasn't it? That was another one of his which was written at very short was, notice. Which was um and then he 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 wrote a sequel to that one a couple of, you know when it no when Millennium Shock the, the sequel was, was the one yeah. was Millennium Shock was the sequel yeah um but I remember I remember reading System Shock running at the time that I, that was working in the bank and we were getting an awful lot of new office technology in so it seemed <laughs> it was very it was very relevant to me at the time but I, I, my my main memory was that I didn't enjoy Sands of Time as much as I enjoyed some of these other ones Theatre War was was excellent I remember that one very well. The ending is fantastic because I never saw that coming, even though the clues are there from, I think it's about yeah. page 10. It's very much, it's so obvious what's going to happen and it's just not given away. Can we, will we do the spoiler alert, chaps? Um, yeah, do, yeah. Yeah, do a spoiler alert. If you don't want to okay. hear whatever the heck Ken is about to reveal, then... <laughs> awooga, awooga. Close your ears. Is this At it? the end, we discover that Nyssa has been kept for 4,000 years and been mummified. And then she's awakened and revived at the end. And she's an old lady. And they're thinking, oh, no, what are we going to do? But it turns out it's an aged version of Anne Talbot from Black Orchid. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. <laughs> There's one for the fans. That's yeah. very much a f- one to please the fans who'll get the reference. Yeah. That's just, see, that, that's the sort of thing that, I'm, that I was saying earlier on that I'm divided about. I'm sure at the time it didn't bother me. It's the sort of thing that now I'd probably end up swearing and walking <laughs> or switching off the telly. <laughs> do you know? But it's, just, it's one thing I'll say that for the Virgin books especially were really, really good at tying everything together in that way. You know what I mean? And yeah. and not, not in a in a really ostentatious hey, look at this, but they were they, they were really good at using mythology and using because I remember like the um the, there was a sort of a sequence of novels for the seventh doctor run about Lucifer rising, um, that sort of time. The future history cycle as it yeah, was known. Yeah. And they were excellent because they brought in IMC and they, they referenced, you know, all sorts of the, they, they brought a sort of coherence to the future, the various sort of different versions of the future that we'd seen on, on television. Well, in their future series. Really, yeah. yeah. And um, it was, I can, you can, I can sort of forgive them for, for using Anne Talbot <laughs> because it was, it was in the spirit of the, of the, of, of the thing. I really enjoyed the Virgin Missing Adventures 
I think they and the the later BBC books of covering the earlier Doctors, they definitely had a, a distinctive feel to them that were very much, most of them were trying to capture the, the vibe of the time you know, to get their, their zeitgeist of what was happening mm. in the TV series. And there just so many of them just felt absolutely right. Some of them obviously were a few, perhaps one could say, missteps that just didn't quite hit the mark for me. But by and large, they were very, very much you know, written to feel like yeah. they were stories that you never read. I mean, obviously, there's yeah. the Gareth Roberts, Tom Baker stories were of course, great. Of course. There's, um, Adam, who was it? Um, who was it? Was it Steve Lyons wrote a couple of Six Doctor books? Just set yes. just after the trial. They were phenomenal. Time yep. of Your Life was one of them, wasn't it? And then a, a yep. Cyberman one. They were amazing. The Killing Ground. Yes. They the were new excellent. Grant they Mark. really, really were. Yeah. They were great because they, they really that that was the be, the best thing about the see the best thing about the missing adventures. I think that essentially is what you're saying is that they they really they really built on everything. They really expanded it, and you know and you know they, they as as they used to say, you know, stories that were too broad and too small, but they really built on a foundation that was there and and really took them for it was you know it's as there's a lot of people that say that that um. They used to sort of say that in some ways they wish the program had never come back because the books were so good, you know. <laughs> and I remember, you know, the the early mid nineties were, were was it despite yeah. the fact it wasn't a TV series, it was a good time to be alive because the books were all done with so much care. You know what I mean? Yeah. Of course, the interesting thing about Sands of Time is that it was published in May nineteen ninety six, the month that the TV movie was ah. shown. So what was the what was the new adventure that came out at the same time then? I don't know. I haven't done my research in that one. I'm trying to think. What could it, could it would it have been Lucy's wedding? Would it have been around that one? Maybe. Hang on. I'm, I'm not sure. Speculation about about this is that interesting. It was happy list. endings. <laughs> That's true. That's happy true. endings by Paul Cornell. The fiftieth new <laughs> adventure was out in May 1996. Yeah. Well, guess Dave. Yeah, he was around about then. <laughs> well done. I will edit that so that it sounds as if you had it up your fingers. From an ancient evil to an ancient classic. More than likely, we may not be able to defeat this menace. And at London, in fact, the whole of England might be completely wiped out. Oh dear. Any attempt to interfere would be pointless. My Yeti can destroy you so easily. I've sacrificed you all. And for what? Once again, quoting from TARDISFANDOM.com, The Web of Fear was the fifth serial of season five of Doctor Who. It saw the return of the great intelligence and its robotic yeti, as well as Professor Edward Travers. Perhaps most notably, however, it featured the first appearance of Colonel, later Brigadier, Lethbridge Stewart, played by Nicholas Courtney. Unit, however, was not introduced until his next appearance in The Invasion. Before 2013, all but the first episode of the serial were missing from the BBC archive. In October of that year, the remainder of the episodes, with the exception of episode three, as well as those of The Enemy of the World, were returned, having been located in Nigeria. The third episode remains missing as of 2019, with only loose reconstructions and the recorded audio track in the BBC's possession. Um, that was a happy ending for the Web of Fear um, back in uh, 2013, wasn't it? Yep, it was. When did you first hear that it had been recovered and was coming back? There'd been so many rumours, hadn't there? I remember over the summer that there was really, 
and I wouldn't I wouldn't name names, but there was a lot. There was a few sites and a few sort of you know fans sort of Twitter accounts that were adamant that um, Web of Fear, Enemy of the World, and Marco Polo were all back, and you know people had sources but they couldn't name them and all that sort of stuff. And there was I remember an awful lot of speculation on on Facebook and Twitter about what was actually going on, and then. I think the Radio Times were going to announce something, but then it got bumped back a couple of days, and then eventually, you know, it was in the front. It was it was in the front pages of the newspapers. It was amazing. Daily Mirror splashed on it. Yep. The top half of the front page. Yeah. I've got got a photograph of that somewhere. I remember putting standing in Sainsbury's and taking a photograph and putting it on my Instagram. Kenny, you've recently uh, revisited Web of Fear, not for the first time, I'm sure. Uh, What are your impressions? Well, it's one of those. It was really, really bizarre ones when you think, I think I watched Web of Fear tonight. And just think 10 years ago, you'd have been going, yeah, right. Absolutely amazing to have it because I first saw episode one of Web of Fear on the BSB Doctor Who weekend when they showed it and the abominable snowmen as the Yeti rarities. Yeah, I remember that. uh, A wonderful, a wonderful term. And it's quite incredible to think that this was the fifth series, sorry, the fifth serial of of season five. But... The, the original Abominable Snowmen had been story two, so obviously they knew they'd a hit in their hands because within 12 weeks of episode six of Abominable Snowmen finishing, here we go, they're back. Um, I love it. I'm not going to lie. I think it's really atmospheric. Oh, it's excellent, I think yeah. it's, it's got a great tone to it, a great feel, um, and you genuinely do believe that you're in the London Underground. It's a world away from the, the wobbly sets of yeah. many other serials of the time. Well, wasn't there a rumour that the the BBC had actually written to the the sort of the London Underground had written to the BBC to complain that they'd filmed in one of the stages without permission? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because they had, they had seen it. I mean, I, I watched it a few months ago, and my wife Carolyn uh, was looking at it, and I told her that that was a studio; it wasn't the Underground, and she couldn't believe it. I mean, they are just remarkable sets. They've got echoes on it. They've got water dripping. It's very, very carefully yeah. thought through and how they've done it and realised it. The thing is about uh, Web of Fear, when, when I was a teenager and, you know, heavily into Doctor Who and collecting all the Target books, my friend Brem and I had been told, were aware that there was an adventure. We'd both read The Abominable Snowmen, but Web of Fear hadn't come out yet uh, as a novel. We were both aware there had been a sequel to the Bond of Snowmen, and that it involved the London Underground. That is all we knew about it. <laughs> and then we got uh, a letter from Target Books. We were on the mailing list for when books were going to be released, and one of them was Doctor Who and the Web of Fear. And we thought, well, I wonder what that's about, because we had no idea what it, what the name of the sequel actually was. And then Brem bought the making of Doctor Who, you know, the, the new version of it, the one with Tom yep. Baker on the cover. Yep. And, of course, it's got a list of and a description of all of the adventures up to, up until Deadly Assassin. And I remember scrolling through it and finding Web of Fear. And I, and I was so excited. And I said to him, it's the Yeti. And we just were, <laughs> we were so overexcited about it. It was, it was a wonderful time. And, of course, the, the novelisation is terrific. The novel is one, um, one of the ones that I remember reading as a kid. And it's, and it's a story. It's... You know, I'm quite critical of a lot of season five. I find a lot of it quite, quite slow moving, and it's quite you know repetitive with you know because they turn up in another installation and there's another, you know, highly stressed sort of person in charge. But the Web of Fear doesn't really have that. But it's 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 virtually flawless because there's it just it just has so much atmosphere. Um, there's so much all the all the film stuff. 
you know, the film material when they're when they're filming actually in London. No, it's it's just you know it's top ten. It really is one of the absolute best. Definitely agree. I think there's some lovely wee touches in there. Like in episode three, obviously we we can't watch it at the moment. Who knows? Apparently it's in Australia, according to Philip Morris, in a private collector's hands. Um, but there's that lovely wee visual gag that when I think it's Evans gets a bar of chocolate. That it's uh, Camfield's chocolate, obviously directed by Douglas Camfield and not Cadbury's <laughs> chocolate, which I thought was a really nice touch. Oh, never and then that. in episode, oh, and I think it's in episode four or episode five, it's got Jamie in the underground and there's a whole load of posters on the wall behind him. And yeah. you can see that one of the adver- one of the adverts is actually for the SNP, the Scottish National Party, which I think it's so really? bizarre. Advertising. Yeah, yeah it's, it's would, there. It's, that's that's mental. Would would they have advert? I mean, I wonder if those were based on actual posters that were around at the time. They certainly wouldn't have advertised in the London Underground. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. it's a mystery. It's very very bizarre. I'm not. I don't think there were any Scots working on that, apart from Fraser. Well, half of Fraser. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think it, it was it was just so bizarre that I spotted that in the background behind yeah. them. Yeah. It's interesting, um it's it's a while since I've listened to the Bonbo Snowmen. But um as a you know, as a sequel, it's it's very it's you know, it's it's not a rehash, obviously. You know, they do something very different, you know, with the location and with um all the you know, the sort of the army personalities going along. It's a lot more I think it's a bit more involved. My memory of the Bonbo Snowmen is that I enjoyed the first couple of episodes, but you know, it was a struggle to get through the rest of it. It's very much a template for what's going to come with the Pertwee years, of course. Um, we've got the the alien threat. We've got the, the army good guys, the Doctor helping them out and foiling the menace. And it's fantastic. Um, you can see yeah. very much why they went back and thought, OK, let's do this thing <clears> again when it came to Series 6 with the invasion right. yeah. of the Cybermen. Yeah, so rather than use the underground, they're coming from below the surface. OK, they're coming out the sewers this time. Yeah. And that's the Very thing with the Web of Fear being a safe, sequel itself, it then, it then got its own sequel, didn't it? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is just that the Web of Fear itself was, you know, being a sequel itself to the Abominable Snowman, then got its own sequel in the shape of the invasion, you know, contemporary Earth, extraterrestrial invasion, oh, unit the army and all that. So, yeah. yeah. So would, you consider, would you consider the invasion a sequel to Web of Fear then? Oh, yeah, I would say so. Definitely. Yeah. I would. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's thematically, it's the same story, but... Um, just a little bit longer. It's because it's. Then, it, you could say the same about about Spears from Space. Then was that a sequel to Invasion? I, feel, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> That's an awful lot of sequels. Much, with, it is, isn't it? I mean, that, but it's, I suppose it's. I, th- I think that. Um, don't honestly think you would say Spearhead was as much of a sequel to the Invasion as the Invasion is from the Web of Fear because the Web of Fear they've thought right. This well, some of really, it's filmed in the same the, location yeah. as Invasion. Well, the Web of Fear, they've obviously thought, right, this has worked really, really well. We've got soldiers, it's contemporary off. The Doctor's sort of in a bit of a Quater Mass sort of type role. Um, Nicholas Courtney's a good guy. Let's get him back. Let's put him in charge. And then so they, it's, I think, they were, and then the invasion works well enough in them, you know, works well enough on its own at that point, you know, because we know that with season six, there was a danger of cancellation. So they thought, obviously, again, you know, Derek Sherwin, who, you know, came up with the unit idea, apparently, um, They've seen that the invasion was so successful. They thought, right, we can, you know, this has worked, so we can use that as the background for, for what we do with the third Doctor. Well, we'll just agree to disagree on that one. All right, no, go <laughs> ahead. Well, no, what do you think? I mean, no, I, I, I think if you were to assume that every Doctor adventure that had the same structure um, as as a previous adventure was, in technical terms, a sequel, then I think 
you know, 50% of all adventures could be classed that way, I think. Yeah, yeah that's fair. I mean, I, I, um, I just... It's very I much, think, it's a template, though, isn't it? It's a template more yeah. than anything for what's going to shape. It's the shape I mean, of things to come. It's, it's well, a sequel in as is. much as, yeah. It's a sequel in as much as they get Nicholas Courtney back and they do some more stuff with soldiers. Yeah. And then, then after that, they refine it a bit further. It's actually incredibly difficult to define a sequel yeah, in, a, in a show like Doctor Who anyway. Because technically, I mean, I've made this case about James Bond films, that every single James Bond film ever made was a sequel to Doctor No. Mm. Uh, and so yeah. it's difficult, more difficult on a television show, but I suppose technically if it all feature the same character, then they're all sequels to each other and it becomes a meaningless expression. But in this podcast, yeah. we have chosen three that have a particular thing in common with their original yeah. uh, particular yeah. show. Guys, yeah. what do you think has happened to episode three? Do you think it's out there? I there don't know, man. Photogra- photographic evidence shows that it was found by Philip Morris. Photographic it's... evidence? What photographic evidence? He took a picture of the 12 film cans and then when he went back to collect them, there were only 11. So, I mean, so it could have randomly been another one that disappeared or it just happened to be the one that had the, the first appearance of Nicholas Courtney? Um, apparently... I think it's just been random from what well, films. I don't know. We well, shouldn't have taken Web 1 or Enemy of the World 3 since we already <laughs> yeah, had them. Yeah, I know. We yeah. we hear all these stories about um, people who, who own every single episode and are refusing to release them uh, to the BBC. Um, I find it difficult to believe that anyone ever in history is that evil. Uh, I, I, I don't know, man. You know, what, you know what some Doctor Who fans are like? But but that's a level of evil that really is beyond my comprehension. I fear that, and, and I hate to disappoint people out there, but I think we're going to just have to accept that after 50-odd years, a lot of these shows are never returning. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I still think, think there will be a few missing episodes out there. I mean, we've, we've, I a think few, it's but we're never, go, we're never going to get Full House, are we? Yeah. No. Never. I mean that, that was that, that was the that was the big rumor that was flying around at the time that Enemy of the World and Web of Fear came back was that everything was back virtually. Yeah, only rumor. I mean, I remember I remember people. When, you know, I was at that point I was working in HMV and in, in, in Glasgow City Centre, and I remember people coming in to see me. <laughs> people phoning the shop. I had to speak to me to see what I'd heard. <laughs> it was insane. You know, I was negotiating my lunch break so I could go out and take phone calls. It was nonsense. As if I as if I knew anything. I was just passing on what I'd heard from other people, but it was it was a good it was a good couple of years because remember obviously a couple of years before that we got the underwater menace episode and the Galaxy Four episode, so yeah. that was it was an exciting time because in the space of two years more than ten percent of what was missing came back. You know it was it was crazy, and yeah. I'm I'm always hopeful that something else will turn up. There isn't a day that goes by when I think about something else turning up. Well, in the case of the Web of Fear, we're in a far better position than we were just a few years ago, so we should just be grateful for that, I suppose. Um, It's certainly a classic episode. I mean, I know that every episode is a classic episode, but there are some episodes, I think, that are just more important than other episodes. Some uh, are more classic than others. Possibly. (laughs) And I think this is one of them. I think that, you know, as you said before, you know, this, this created the template, it created the Brigadier, or the colonel as it was at the time, um, it reproduced, you know, brought back a, a, a monster that had been a huge hit, and it's still very fondly remembered. Of course, it didn't appear again on television to the Five Doctors. Is that right? Yes, yes. And then, then there was downtime, of course, but we could probably talk about that on, on another occasion. Sure, been well. off spectacular special. Yep. 
Well, I think that's given our three subjects today uh, a, a decent analysis. Any final words? Well, I'd like to add in something. Um, in our second podcast, when we paid tribute to Terence Dix, I never got the chance to tell you about the second time that I met Terence. He was up in Scotland again. This was five years ago in May. He was visiting Airdrie Library to do a talk about writing books. And of course, the Doctor Who element was a huge part of that. So my friend, Bob Mitchell, he flagged up to me and said it was coming up and did a fancy going. So I said, of course, but I actually took my daughter with me. Katie was only eight at the time. And for me, I thought this would be quite nice. This is the guy whose books virtually taught me to read. And I thought I'm going to take Katie along just so she can see this is the guy who was my JK Rowling. So she came along and we got a really nice picture of her. He was really, really great with her and spoiled her, chatted to her, found out you know, what her favourite stories were, who her favourite doctor was and made a real fuss of her and was an absolute gent. So it was really nice that I've got that sort of connection that the guy who yeah. whose books meant so much to me and still do mean so much to me got to meet my little girl as well. So Very there we go. Good. That's my second anecdote. It was a lovely photograph you put on our Facebook page, Kenny, of your daughter, Kenny. Yes, I guess. Yes. <laughs> that and that's what I get for trying to get it out there quickly. <sighs> <laughs> Thank goodness for the well, power of the edit button. I wish Twitter yes, had done. Absolutely. Uh, appropriate that uh, we finish on another tribute to Terence Dicks, since, of course, he wrote uh, the novelisation of Pyramids of Mars and he also wrote the novelisation of Web of Fear. Right, well, thank you, gentlemen, once again for your time and your patience. And uh, we'll meet again to go over uh, to give our expert opinion on another three items from the Hooniverse. There, I used Tom, the you said it. Boo! <laughs> I can live with Hooniverse, Hoovians. No, 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 never. Remember to follow us on Power of Three Pod on Twitter. That's Power of Three with the number three. Uh, and like us on Facebook uh, and we'll have another podcast up uh, as soon as possible. Goodbye. Cheers, folks. Bye-bye. Cheers.